Good afternoon, everybody. Um, since I get to speak right next, following that, um, that presentation by the Honorable Phil Graham, uh, let me just say I, I thought it was absolutely masterful, his usual um, common sense genius. So um, I think we were all very fortunate to, to hear his comments. And as a former chairman of the Senate Banking Committee, uh, he really has invaluable insights for uh, these issues that are so relevant going forward. It is my great pleasure. I'm Judy Shelton, um, and um, I get to serve as the moderator for panel three. I was not originally scheduled to play this role, but um, when my good friend Jim Dorn and my very valued colleague uh, asked if I could substitute, I was very happy to do so. I have a long affiliation with the Cato Institute um, as a member of the editorial board for the Cato Journal. And uh, I'm very proud to serve as a member of the Executive Advisory Council at the Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives. I'm particularly excited uh, because this topic for this panel is uh, quite intriguing. As you know, it's entitled, The Problem of a Centrally Planned monetary system, which is very provocative. Uh, I love it. Um, and we have three superb speakers who will address that subject. Perhaps the title resonates with me because I spent many years in my early career analyzing the monetary and budgetary situation in the Soviet Union. And that involved evaluating let's call it the, the compromising effects of a state-owned banking system. And you'd think we would have learned something from that collapsed economy. You might put it like this. If, if free markets deliver better outcomes than central planning decisions, one might reason that in a free market capitalist economy, the last thing you would turn over to central planners would be the power to determine the cost of capital. But is, is that what we've done? And what might be a better approach? Luckily, we have Gerald O'Driscoll, Kevin Dowd, and Tyler Goodspeed to help us think productively and creatively about that subject. Jerry O'Driscoll, uh, our first speaker, is someone who, uh, for me, perfectly combines intellectual rigor as an academic with hands-on experience as a top policy analyst for Citigroup and as vice president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas. Now, now you can read his very impressive bio in your materials, but let me just say, when Jerry talks, people listen, starting with me, Jerry. Thank you, Judy, and thank you, Jim, for inviting me once again to the Cato Monetary Conference. Uh, the title of my talk is Re Rethinking Central Banking, and this rethinking uh, examines what central banks can do, what they can't do, and what they should do. And I'll start with what they cannot do. Last year for this conference, my paper focused on the knowledge problem 
I reprise that issue in this year's paper. Put very simply, exercising discretionary monetary policy requires knowledge that no central banker can possess. To generate an optimal monetary policy involves surmounting the same knowledge problem that confronts central planning. The policymaker must coordinate across the millions of plans of market, the market's actors. Solving that problem requires forward-looking information about decentralized economic planning. Central bankers can accumulate data, but data are always backward-looking. <clears throat> All this year, Federal Reserve officials have postponed raising interest rates in the hope that they would get a better picture of the future. But in each period, the future remains as far in the temporal distance as it was at the last meeting. The FLOMC will certainly know more about the fourth quarter of 2016 at its December meeting than it knew in September or even November. But the following quarter will be as murky as was the fourth quarter of this year last September. Alan Meltzer reminds us oftentimes at this conference that economics is not the science of predicting the future. There is no such science. The future is inherently uncertain, and that uncertain, uncertainty cannot be eliminated. Friedrich Hayek and Milton Friedman analyzed the impossibility of what we would now call optimal monetary policy. I also cite many other figures in this vein in my paper. Well, if the arguments against discretion are so compelling, why are we stuck with it? Central banks do not operate in a vacuum, but in a world buffeted by political whirlwinds. Drawing on both economics and political science, I examine the public choice aspects of Fed decision making. Discretion meets the needs of politicians and Fed policymakers. Politicians like to claim credit for, bad for good outcomes, but they want to avoid the blame for bad outcomes. In taking credit, politicians often reap where others have sown. But to avoid the ire of voters for bad results, politicians need to be able to shift blame to others. It turns out that policy discretion sol solves both problems. The Fed follows no rule, which would provide an objective measure of success. Instead, its goals and procedures are ambiguous. If the voting publi public is happy with macro outcomes, politicians take credit. If they're unhappy, politicians turn to the Fed and say it's their fault. But wh why do Fed officials go along with this? Why don't they go seek a policy rule so they don't get to be scapegoated? Well, they get power and prestige, which are valuable non-pecuniary returns. So there is symbiotic rent-seeking by Fed officials and politicians. The two sides feed off each other to their mutual benefit. When it comes to monetary policy, it is in the interest of Congress and the President not to compel the Fed to uh, specify a complete monetary strategy. Here I quote from Ed Kane, quote, the advantage that I see is that by leaving the Fed high command a substantial amount of ex-ante discretion, elected officials leave them the scope for blaming the Fed ex-post when things go wrong, close quote. So pure theory and public choice analysis discredit any conception of optimality as a goal of policy discretion. Discretion works for both political actors and central bankers, 
but does not do well for the economy. And has not done, it has done so badly in recent years that now voter dissatisfaction with it has made it a campaign issue. So Congress, or at least the House of Representatives, uh, has tried to act to somewhat diminish monetary policy discretion by mandating that the Fed follow a rule. That was the import of the Fed Oversight Reform and Modernization Act, or the FORM Act. It is a step toward needed reform. In the paper, I also deal with the Fed's large-scale asset purchases, or quantitative easing. QE, quantitative easing, included major purchases of mortgage-backed securities. This involves a dangerous foray into credit allocation. Jeff Hummel charged that, quote, central banking has become the new central planning, close quote. I agree. I won't belabor the problem of credit allocation at a Cato conference, but I note that the Fed is harming its standing with the voting public. In the words of former Governor Kevin Warsh, quote, a central bank, central bank power is permissible in a democracy only when its scope is limited, its track record strong, and its accountability assured, close quotes. Today's Fed falls, uh, fails on all three accounts. So what would a Fed reform involve? It would involve, first, limiting its scope, second, improving its performance, and third, increasing its accountability. What's the first item of business in this? Downsizing the Fed balance sheet is required to address all three problems. Any public institution with a $4.5 trillion balance sheet, I'm still not used to trillion, I had trillion there, $4.5 trillion balance sheet, will find itself in the business of allocating credit and expanding its scope. The discretion to loose, do so loosens its accountability. The Fed's bloated balance sheet has also created technical problems in conducting monetary policy. By expanding its balance sheet, the Fed flooded banks with reserves, and so commercial banks are no longer reserve constrained. The Fed also moved out of holding short-term assets into holding only long-term assets. The Fed thus has no longer has any short-term assets to sell to raise short-term interest rates. The two factors reinforce each other. Banks are not reserve constrained and mostly don't need to borrow Fed funds. So the Fed cannot set the Fed funds rate because it cannot, it certainly can't raise the Fed funds rate because it has no short-term assets to sell. So the central bank's traditional method of constraining bank lending and ultimately controlling inflation has been eliminated. The Fed is trying to now operate on its liability side to influence short-term rates by manipulating two administered rates, which we've heard mentioned several times. First, the interest rate on bank reserves and the interest rate it pays on reverse repos. The problem is that short-term market interest rates are decoupled from these administrated rates. Jerry Jordan takes this issue up in more detail in his paper in the next session. My recommendation, additional recommendations, so, or specific recommendation, is that the Fed let maturing assets roll off its balance sheet to shrink it and even sell some of the long-dated assets. The goal is to get bank reserves, banks reserve constrained so the Fed can conduct conventional monetary policy. So I endorse uh, former Governor Heller's uh, call earlier today. I also advocate strongly that the Fed's emergency lending powers under Section 13.3 of the Federal Reserve Act be eliminated. 
you change is essential to get the Fed out of credit allocation and out of lending to politically favored institutions. With those changes, we could then implement a monetary rule of some kind. There would be no more technical nor political impediments to implementing such a monetary rule. Right now, today, you cannot implement a monetary rule. I strongly oppose recent proposals to diminish the role of reserve banks in monetary policy making. Doing so would limit the diversity of ideas in policy making and undermine the decentralization that was inherent to the design of the Fed. Also, the proposals to push the Fed presidents out of monetary policy making are beside the point as they address none of the pressing monetary issues of the day. And by the way, my personal opinion is the reason this proposal is being pushed is precisely to deflect attention from what the real problems are. I explain my position in more detail in the paper. To reiterate and, and finish up, my goal is to limit the Fed scope, improve its policy performance, and enhance its accountability. I want to return to a time when ordinary people do not know what a Fed chair is, much less her identity. High Federal Reserve officials should not be the most important economic policymakers in the land. That role belongs to elected officials. My vision is in the spirit of Milton Friedman's admonition that monetary policy should provide a framework within which private planning and decision-making take place not central planning. Thank you. Well, that was just wonderful, Jerry. I, I thought there were several excellent suggestions. So thank you very much. Um, and now we are privileged to hear from Kevin Dowd. Uh, Kevin is a great scholar and a great friend who has written extensively and with tremendous originality on financial and banking matters. Um, Kevin, I, I go back and I sort through stacks of books and journals that I've accumulated over the years. And, and it seems that whenever I flip open to a dog-eared page or a yellow post-it note or a hastily torn piece of paper that I used as a bookmark, more often than not, it turns out to be to something that he has written <laughs> that I wanted to go back and, and read again. And I have no doubt that will happen again with the Cato Journal version of what you are about to say today. So, Kevin. Well, thank you, Judy, for that lovely introduction. And uh, good afternoon, everyone. Um, the theme of our talk is best uh, summarized by Emerson. Money often costs too much. Now, 300 years ago, the Scottish financier John Law embarked on an interesting experiment in France that foreshadowed recent policies. It included money creation, QE, and lots of clever engineering. It worked for a while, but then collapsed, and many people were ruined. Law's mistake was to think that you could manufacture productivity by printing money. And for many years afterwards, France had an abiding horror of paper money and banks. 
painful lessons were learned about the dangers of wild monetary experiments. Those lessons were then forgotten. 80 years later, she embraced the Assignats and another disaster ensued. Similar disasters recurred throughout the 19th century and prompted a famous observation by Sir Robert Giffen. For a good money is so very difficult a thing to get. And governments, when they meddle with money, are so apt to make blunders. Now fast forward to recent years and we have unlearned those lessons again. Modern policymakers are prone to make two major errors. The first is their fixation with the belief that if there is inad inadequate performance, that, then that must be due to inadequate demand. Their only solution is to stimulate demand. They are then left scratching their heads when stimulus fails to work. The second error is instrumentalism. Instead of seeing the monetary system as a spontaneous order whose sole purpose is to serve its participants, they see it as something to be controlled for some higher end. Interest rates and monetary aggregates are not seen as the products of markets, but as control instruments. Analysis of the monetary order as self-organizing gives way to control and optimization analysis. To quote Herbert Frankel, it's truly significant that even in the free world, the notion that people are entitled to use money as they please is regarded with skepticism. From this perspective, more instruments are always to be preferred to fewer, and the inbuilt constraints that protect the system are mere hindrances that prevent central banks from doing as they please. Underlying this error is a deeper one. They think that if they control the system, if they understand the system, then they can control it. But this is the height of hubris. Now, forward to 96, and Greenspan warned of irrational exuberance in the markets. He then eased monetary policy to stimulate them further. The Greenspan put protected investors on the downside, encouraging them to buy stocks to push up their prices. It also encouraged the greater fool mentality. People knowingly buy over overvalued assets in the hope that some greater fool will buy them at even higher prices. The trouble is that market fundamentals reassert themselves and the market crashes. As we all know, the Fed put us through this ringer again and again. Repeatedly doing the same thing and expecting a different result is literally insane. The everything bubble is the biggest monetary experiment ever, so why wouldn't it, always, why wouldn't it also lead to the biggest ever bust? Now, one of the Fed's main responses to the crisis was ZERP now almost eight years old. ZERP has many adverse effects. It encourages greater risk-taking via search for yield. It encourages leverage and buybacks, undermines balance sheets, encourages profligacy, delays restructuring. It devastates savers and pension funds. It reduces bank profitability, especially when the yield curve becomes flat or inverted. Above all, ZERP, I'm sorry, I, I that one. Above all, ZERP is not stimulative. It undermines the incentive to lend, so lending falls. It failed to boost spending because people save more. Central bankers are now stuck in a ZERP trap. They implement ZERP thinking it is stimulative and keep trying in a self-defeating attempt to produce a stimulus that ZERP cannot produce. This ZERP trap is a central banker's groundhog day doomed to go round and round until they see their error, which won't be any time soon. Now, a second pillar of conventional policy is QE. This was accompanied by the payment of interest on reserves to sterilize the flood of reserves that QE created. 
the combination of QE and IOR is best understood as preferential credit allocation policy. To quote Larry White, this policy is overreaching, wasteful, morally hazardous, and fraught with serious governance problems. Fed-directed asset allocation is akin to central planning. It creates deadweight losses and encourages lobbying and cronyism. QE-targeted assistance also intrudes on fiscal policy. QE had little impact on growth and little benefit except to Wall Street. The Fed spins QE as a tool to help Main Street, but to quote a former QEaser, QE is the greatest Wall Street bailout of all time. The failure of stimulus to stimulate is apparent from a range of indicators. A slowdown in the growth rate, a fall in job creation, median real income well below the peak attained in 1990, rising inequality, a slowdown in small business formation, U6 unemployment at 9.7%, double the official rate, and most Americans have little or no savings. But the most worrying performance indicator is the collapse of productivity growth. Between 47 and 73, labor productivity grew at 3% a year. It fell to 1.9% in the period to 2010, and has been 0.5% since. Productivity was slightly stronger in Europe and worse in Japan. The correlation between extreme monetary policy and lousy productivity is unmistakable. We can now propose a new economic law validated in four experiments that if you persist in ZERP for an extended period, you'll get a collapse in productivity growth. We can dismiss two popular explanations. Robert Gordon's secular stagnation theory doesn't fit the timescale. And if Alvin Hansen's version were true, stimulus would have worked by now. So what's going on? I think there's a clue in this chart. Real private non-residential investment took seven years to recover to its 2007 levels. Much of this investment was wasted on unproductive projects like bridges to nowhere. This is a particular favorite of mine, a British version. Um, ZERP distorts firms' asset allocation, sorry, firms' investment decisions and, and crowds out labor-supporting investments. It encourages firms to borrow money to spend on buybacks, etc., promotes speculation, encourages investments in unviable projects. It discourages investments in new plan R&D and worker training. This is the central problem for the new administration. If monetary policies are not reversed, productivity and growth will continue to be poor. So can we expect some modesty from central bankers? Well, not from Mr. Draghi. In a recent speech, he said there was little alternative to money printing and low rates in a world where prospects are dim. But we've been awash with stimulus for nearly a decade, and prospects are still poor despite all that effort, or perhaps because of it. They say we need more of it because it failed to deliver, but this doesn't seem quite right to me. Call me simple, but the fact that aggressive easing has failed suggests that it has failed. It does not suggest we need more. Now, conventional policies have not just failed, they're not sustainable either. Now, part of the reason is that central bankers cannot eliminate risks. They can suppress them temporarily and make the bust bigger. A portfolio built only to withstand central bank stress is one des destined to blow up in spectacular fashion. Think of carry trades. These are perfectly safe until the moment they blow up. Historical experience suggests that risks are greatest when measured risks are lowest, and everyone wonders where the risks went. Policymakers are now holding a tiger by the tail. They can't hang on and they can't let go. Come the renewed crisis, we'll be looking at default or forgiveness on a large scale. 
But if current policies are not sustainable, it's not clear how the Fed can restore normality. It may have trapped itself in QE forever, another Groundhog Day. Now, as Jerry Jordan and Jerry O'Driscoll have pointed out, the Fed's response to the crisis has undermined its own ability to control rates, which I think is a rather nice own goal. But even if the Fed could raise rates, the Fed faces the problem of how to do so without triggering a crisis. So this would impose a massive strain on leveraged firms and profligate governments, and we're talking about trillions in losses. Plus, markets are now highly correlated, and the only asset that matters is the 10-year Treasury. A sharp rise would burst all the bubbles the Fed has blown. Large pools of capital have become accustomed to strategies based on short-term returns and relative performance. In other words, these prime the market for the next black swan. If the Fed hikes, markets will go down very hard. Many of these exposures are poorly hedged. Participants can't design a good hedging strategy because stable rates mean they don't have the data to calibrate a hedge. Risk models are difficult to calibrate for the same reason, making them useless for anticipating the outer sample events that matter. Now, risk models would also intensify market stability. Should any event trigger losses, the models would respond by sell-offs, which would create a positive feedback and make the problem worse. In any case, the risk models are useless because they're, they're based on Gaussianity and value at risk. They are designed to be blind to the risks that matter because bankers want to keep capital requirements down. So the Fed is boxed in. It needs to raise rates, but it can't feasibly do so. And the longer it delays, the worse the problems become. The danger then is that the Fed might reach out for new instruments that it has not yet tried. So let's let the remaining genies out of their bottles in the hope that we'll, they will undo the damage done by the ones we let out earlier. Now, the first of these is to ramp up QE. Um, now, here, you've got the central bank balance sheets. Bank of Japan is, uh, is the one that matters in red. The good news is that we know how this experiment will work out, because it's been tried in Japan. The bad news is it didn't work. It's a normal stimulus achieved little benefit, and if it didn't work on this scale in Japan, there's no reason to think it would work anywhere else. It aggravated the problems of arbitrary redistribution, misallocation, and the undermining of market process that are inherent to QE. The BOJ's bond purchases are on such a scale that it has cornered the market and is struggling to find more bonds to buy. Japanese institutions are increasingly assessing bonds not on their credit fundamentals, but on the likelihood that the BOJ will buy them up. Soon it will own everything and Japan will be nationalized. Now, last year, Governor Kuroda set out his thinking, citing Peter Pan as his role model. <laughs> the moment you doubt whether you can fly, you cease forever to be able to do so. To point out the obvious, Peter Pan is a fictional children's character. <laughs> and at least Ben's helicopters can fly. So let, let me suggest a more appropriate role model. Icarus had exactly the positive attitude and conviction that Mr. Kuroda calls for. Now, more recently, the BOJ has attempted to peg Japanese 10-year bond yields at zero. This gives up on any attempt to maintain monetary control. These policies pave the way for unlimited monetary expansion, and this can only end one way. The last remaining constraints against overissue are kicked away as Japanese policymakers become increasingly delusional. Now, the next balmy proposal is NERP. 
the usual argument is that NERP would stimulate, but, but this fails to address ZERP's failure to stimulate. That it might not be the best of ideas is suggested by it having no precedent in 5,000 years since Hammurabi. It's been badly received in Europe and Japan. NERP means that if I pay you to borrow, NERP means that I pay you to borrow, but if I have to pay to lend, why would I lend at all? NERP means, sorry, NERP encourages investors to flee their traditional safe havens bonds. They presumably flee to cash, which becomes so sought after that the NERPers want to abolish it. NERP means that you rush to pay your taxes, but the government doesn't want you to. If none of this makes any sense, your brain is working. <laughs> People are saving more to meet savings targets. But ZERP cannot be stimulative. ZERP is a tax, and no tax is stimulative. NERP would make, NERP, sustained NERP would also destroy the entire financial system. It would make banks' core business model unviable, define Benefit pension schemes would become unviable because they couldn't meet their commitments. Asset managers, hedge funds, insurance companies would also become unviable. Negative rates are a dreadful idea because they penalize thrift and reward impetuousness. This is the epitome of institutionalized short-termism. It encourages us to live for today when any reasonable person can see that we shouldn't. And there's a reason why we have historically positive interest rates. It's called time preference. But to NERPers, none of this matters. To them, the lower bound is not a boundary, but an obstacle to be kicked away so omniscient central bankers can up their bets and gamble their way out of their own past mistakes. There's another obstacle that they want to kick down, and that's cash. If NERP is implemented aggressively, then bank depositors and bond investors will switch to cash to get a zero return. So many of the NERPers want to block this escape route by banning cash, but they have no idea of the damage this would create. Just look at the chaos in India, or consider the extreme poor. A recent study suggested that there were over 4 million Americans on less than $2 a day. These are the indigent, many who are ill-educated, mentally ill, and on substances. These are the most vulnerable people in our society, and they are totally dependent on the cash economy. There are also those who have chosen to hold their wealth in cash, this includes many foreigners for whom dollar holdings are a protection against domestic financial repression. Um, banning cash would expropriate their wealth, and it just ain't right. It would also be a default whose victims trusted the Fed. Once we're all forced to rely on digital currency, all transactions would be monitored and subject to state approval. There would be a huge loss of civil liberty. All financial holdings would be subject to government predation and the state would have the ultimate means of control. Anyone it targeted couldn't hide, couldn't resist, and couldn't escape. Now, there are also proposals to ban cash to stop bad guys using it. But this is simplistic. It is simplistic to argue that we should all lose some amenity because bad guys use it too. Now, think about it. By the same logic, every, immunity should be, every amenity should be banned because the bad guys use them too. But in any case, the big illicit transactions problem is not cash, but banks. And since banks are regulated, we should be talking about not of banning cash, but of regulatory failure. Now, the last throw of the dice is helicopter money. Central bank issues base money and gives it away. Now, one problem with this idea is that it fosters the illusion of a free lunch and distracts policymakers from the need to address much more pressing concerns. Rational policy is impossible 
in a world in which policymakers operate subject to such an illusion. Another problem is that helicopter money involves redistribution, and redistribution is the domain of fiscal policy, i.e. the government. But the biggest problem is the most obvious problem. Helicopter money threatens to destroy the last remaining constraints against printing too much money. If it is tried and perceived to have succeeded, there will be calls to repeat the success. And if it fails, it will be because it was not tried on a big enough scale. A powerful constituency will have been created that benefits from free money. This encompasses not only Congress, but any groups that might lobby Congress. And of course, everyone fancies free money. There will then be enormous pressure to expand the program and no limit to the demand for it. Now, to quote my last slide, to quote Otmar Issing, helicopter money is nothing less than a monetary policy declaration of bankruptcy. The economic condition of the world is being meddled into chaos that can't be described. Now imagine a truly dystopian monetary future. Massive QE and the Fed buys everything up. Cash is banned and there is no privacy. NERP is implemented and all the major financial institutions are bankrupted. The banks are taken over as government utilities. Old age provision becomes a state monopoly. So private sector capital accumulation falling? No problem. Print money to finance government investment projects. Want more infrastructure? Have a pet project? Just print more money. All policy is then driven by the illusion that helicopter money is free and the helicopter becomes the dominant policy instrument. All constraints to protect sensible money and sound money, sensible finance and sound money, go out of the window, and the value of the currency goes to its intrinsic commodity value, i.e. zero. Now, there's no idea so preposterous that some monetary economist won't seize upon as a panacea. Run it through a central bank research department, and it emerges as a serious proposal. Have some central bank governor propose it, and it becomes the preferred solution. Case in point, Lithuanian central bank governor Vitas Vasilyauskas, who told Reuters recently, we central bankers are magic people. We take something and we give it to the market, a rabbit out of a hat. Now, sorry to burst your bubble, Vitas, but that rabbit routine is only a magic trick. I'm tempted to say, therefore, I'm just concluding, that this monetary magic show cannot end well. Money often costs too much, and the most costly money of all is money that is free. But then again, I might be completely wrong, and the proponents of soft money might be right. After all, if stupidity got us into this mess, then maybe stupidity can get us out. So thank you very much. Thank you very much, Kevin. Um, that was terrific, uh, no, no surprise. Uh, I was very struck by his observation that, that money is something that governments immediately assume must be controlled by them. And I suppose at some point, maybe a society has to ask itself, um, is the primary role of money to serve as a reliable measure in a free market economy? Or should we look upon money as yet another policy instrument of government. So we have to get to some fundamental issues in, in, uh, in the future, maybe the near future. Um, and now our final speaker, Tyler Goodspeed. I am eager to hear 
what Tyler has to say. He has written some extraordinary books, Rethinking the Keynesian Revolution, and his newest, Legislating Instability. He's also written some very penetrating, intriguing articles. Uh, I did not know Tyler personally until today, but I consider our new acquaintanceship a great fringe benefit for having served as moderator of this panel today. So please, Tyler. Well, thank you very much. Um, it truly is a great privilege to be on, on the dais with these folks. Um, I uh, like, uh, I mean, I've, I've read that there's sort of an epidemic of, of death by PowerPoint going around university campuses. So like Kevin, and, but not quite as austerely as, as uh, Jerry, I'm, I'm trying to wean myself off PowerPoint. So it's, uh, this is to a minimum. Um, I wanted to begin just by making a quick pitch for why we should all read more financial history. Uh, and it's not just because I personally think it's interesting in and of itself. Uh, I think we should all read more financial history uh, for two reasons. First, because even for those of us uh, who are sympathetic to the elimination or reform of some of the institutions governing financial markets today, it's often difficult to wrap our heads around the idea of smoothly functioning credit markets uh, in the absence of those institutions or under alternative institutional arrangements. Um, history, in other words, sort of expands our capacity to imagine. Um, second, though, even where we can imagine policy alternatives, uh, it's often very difficult to estimate the impact of a change in regulatory regime in the absence of a proper control group. Um, but history offers us more instances of that holy grail in applied microeconomic research, the quasi-natural experiment. Um, so I just today wanted to talk about the historical role of contingent liability uh, in mitigating the transmission of adverse shocks from financial markets uh, to the real economy in the absence of an official lender of last resort. Now, as lots of you probably know, uh, one of the great things about the United States before the National Bank Act of 1863 is that the US was a virtual laboratory of alternative regulatory treatments at the state level, with different states adopting uh, different policy approaches to mitigating financial instability in banking. So some states, um, like, uh, some states like New York, Vermont, Michigan, um, adopted uh, or opted to socialize risk uh, through the adoption of public insurance of all bank liabilities. Um, others went for mutual liability insurance schemes. A few states tried to at least minimize the effects of idiosyncratic risk uh, by permitting banks to branch, uh, so diversify uh, geographically, while still others raised um, implicit capital requirements through the implementation of contingent and specifically double liability. So shareholders were liable uh, for up to twice their equity investment in the event of bankruptcy or some combination thereof. Um, now, there have been lots of studies on the effectiveness of these different approaches to, to mitigating financial instability, but of course the challenge 
is that it's, it's not random which states are, are adopting different policy approaches. I mean, ideally, we would like to have two banks identical on the same street. One of them gets public liability insurance, the other doesn't. Or one of them gets double liability, the other doesn't. Um, but we can't go back in time and run that experiment. But what we can do um, is we can compare bank outcomes in contiguous border counties, which are what these shaded counties are. So contiguous border counties presumably share similar geographic, physical, economic, social characteristics. So when we also control for additional uh, observable county level variables, uh, we can proceed as if uh, bank coverage by liability insurance or double liability or branch banking was randomly assigned within each contiguously adjacent county pair. Um, so basically, what we want to do is compare bank balance sheet outcomes uh, and bank failure rates in counties covered by public liability insurance or branch banking or double liability uh, versus bank balance sheet metrics or failure rates in contiguously adjacent border counties not covered. So what do we find? Well, this, this might be disappointing at first to people. Um, I find that actually coverage by public liability insurance or double liability in any given year pretty much had no effect on the probability of bank failure. So, you know, same, same, same failure rates. But the longer these different regimes were in place, the greater the difference in bank failure rates within each contiguously adjacent county pair. So the longer uh, public liability insurance was in place, the higher the probability of bank failure in both non-crisis and crisis years. Um, in contrast, the longer the period, uh, the, the longer that bank shareholders were doubly liable for bank liabilities, the lower the probability of bank failure in both non-crisis and crisis years. Um, branching, meanwhile, seems to have lowered the probability of bank failure in normal times, non-crisis years, but doesn't seem to have offered any protection uh, during crisis years. So, um, you know, to me that sort of makes sense because, I mean, branching, the whole idea of a macro shock, like a major financial crisis, is that it's correlated across space. Um, now why, what's sort of driving these results, uh, we might wonder. Well, it seems to be the case that um, there are significant differences in bank balance sheets. So relative to banks in contiguously adjacent counties not covered, uh, banks with longer term coverage by public liability insurance weren't necessarily more levered, but they were more exposed to real estate, they were more exposed to interbank lending, and for funding, they were increasingly relying on less transparent, more volatile uh, sources of funding. In contrast, the longer banks were covered by double liability, the less they were exposed to real estate and interbank lending, and the less reliant they were on less transparent, uh, less volatile, more volatile um, funding. Well, that's all well and good, you might say. Um, but what about during crises? I mean, the whole point of public liability insurance is that it's designed to stem panic in the event of a crisis. Well, how do these insurance schemes fare? Well, in fact, I find that, that 
the liability insurance schemes were generally ineffective um, at, at ineffective at best at mitigating uh, credit disintermediation during crises, um, whereas longer-term coverage by double liability significantly attenuated outflows of bank deposits and declines in note circulation during the, 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 the significant panics of, of 1837 and 1857. Uh, and double liability was also associated with large uh, relative increases in both aggregate lending and interbank lending uh, during and immediately following crises. So this is important because it suggests that extended shareholder liability was mitigating assessments of uh, counterparty risk during these crises. But you might still say, okay, um, so banks with doubly liable shareholders are more prudentially managed, um, they're exhibiting lower failure rates, but at what cost? I mean, you can drive the risk of, of bank failure to practically zero uh, if you sufficiently restrain what banks are willing to do. But what then about financing growth? What about infrastructure? Well, it turns out uh, that when you look at credit per capita, uh, circulating notes per capita, manufacturing, agricultural output per capita, infrastructural development, uh, double liability and um, public liability insurance are uncorrelated with differences uh, in these variables uh, at these contiguous county borders. So in other words, it seems to be the case that the additional financial stability of extended shareholder liability um, did not come at the cost of slower growth or industrialization, while the increased financial instability of public liability insurance did not come with the benefit of faster growth or industrialization. Um, now in the time remaining, I just wanted to shift gears a little bit and, and relate this to some other work on um, extended liability, in this case, unlimited liability um, in 18th century Scotland, um, and also other forms of contingent liability in 18th century Scotland. So this is, this is um, a private Scottish banknote from uh, 1764, I believe. Um, and it entitles the bearer of this note to one pound sterling on demand, or in the option of the directors of the bank, one pound and six pence in six months' time. Now, the standard story of this optional clause um, uh, which, with which many of you are familiar, is that it was used against rival banks during hostile note raids. But I find that, in fact, it was never actually invoked against other banks. And in fact, for the first 30 years of its existence, I find no evidence of the clause ever being invoked at all. So the first and only occasion I can find of the optional clause being exercised was during what was effectively a severe balance of payments crisis at the end of the Seven Years' War. So with the war winding down, Scotland's current account swung to deficit at the same time that English speculators were, were scrambling to remit specie to London for speculation on the London exchanges. Um, and so the Scottish banks were in a bind because they're facing massive external reserve drains. The 
uh, exchange rate is fixed at 12 Scots pounds to one pound sterling. They can't raise deposit rates because there's a binding legal usury limit of 5%. So what do they do? Well, they respond exactly as the IMF uh, would likely have instructed them, which is to try and grind out a real exchange rate depreciation by contracting credit, calling in loans. But they can't really do this because then in a very competitive uh, banking system like Scotland's, all these little new bankers pop up and they start issuing notes. Um, so eventually what the larger Scottish banks do is they privately impose capital con uh, controls by invoking this optional clause, but they only invoke it against large-scale English arbitrageurs attempting to redeem large volumes of high-denomination banknotes. And this actually works like a charm um, because it's basically able to protect the vast majority of Scottish banknote holders um, from disruptive suspension of payments. Um, but at the same time, uh, they sort of are able to halt the external hemorrhaging of reserves and able to buy, buy time for sort of nominal adjustments in the bills of exchange market to pass through to current account-led recovery. Um, now, contingent liability also played a major role in Scottish banking through the unlimited liability of shareholders in Scottish banks. English bank shareholders also had unlimited liability, but in order, in order to protect the privileged position of the Bank of England, they were limited to six partners, so were generally vastly undercapitalized. Um, but in, in Scotland, in contrast, I find that unlimited liability, and others have found, um, that unlimited liability actually served as a major stabilizing force during banking crises uh, for two, in two ways. First, during crises, banks would often take out public advertisements listing the names and estates of their shareholders uh, and noting in bold print that these people stood behind the financial institution to the full extent of their personal wealth. Second, though, even in, in the event of, of outright bank failure, I find that the bailing in of bank equity holders for more than their subscribed capital effectively served the function of a traditional lender of last resort. So for example, uh, when this massive bank failed in 1772, um, about which, uh, a bank in which some of Adam Smith's uh, friends uh, had substantial investments, Scottish credit markets recovered quite sharply once the bank fully compensated creditors by issuing tradable bonds secured by the immense landed estates of its shareholders. Um, and this issuance of bonds backed by, backed by the personal estates of the shareholders um, was especially effective because it allowed creditors to be made whole uh, almost immediately while at the same time it allowed shareholders to liquidate their estates gradually and thereby avoid fire sale losses. Now, I'm not proposing you know, a return to unlimited liability. I don't think that's at all politically feasible. But when we think about on the one extreme, say, unlimited liability, and on the other extreme, socialization of, of loss, um, I think the record of history does does prompt us to think a little bit more critically about allocation of liability. And I want to leave plenty of time for questions, so I will stop there.
Well, that was so interesting, Tyler. <laughs> uh, I quite admire his uh, ability to look at monetary history and draw out useful lessons for today by analyzing these historical examples, and particularly with respect to um, uh, public li liability insurance in time of crisis and what, what works doesn't work, what might work better. So thank you very much. Um, yes, that, that brings us to the end of the formal presentations for this panel, and we will go on to uh, Q&A, but, but please join me in thanking these three outstanding speakers. And uh, on the Q&A session, um, you all know the rules. Please wait for the microphone, identify yourself, and uh, I'm sure our panelists uh, look forward to your succinct and thoughtful questions. Please. A retired money manager. Um, when the Fed sterilized the QE with, uh, by paying interest on um, excess reserves deposited with the, with the Fed, it, it seems to both profit the Treasury and the banks. Maybe that's the reason. So my question is, what is the reason for them paying interest on the deposits and sterilizing what, on the face of it, is stimulatory policy. Who would like to respond to that? I'd like to give a quick response, and maybe Jerry can follow. Mm. The, the bottom line response is that it wanted to stop that money. Oh, sorry. The bottom line response is that it wanted to stop the money, the base money it was creating leaking out into the general circulation. So it needed to sterilize that money. So what was the benefit of the QE? Well, the benefit was a, a big Wall Street bailout. Uh, it, it, it allowed the Federal Reserve to buy time without fixing the banking system properly. I don't think that's a real benefit at all, but that's, I think, why they did it. No, go, go on to the next one. Please. Hello, my name is uh, Ed Teriakin. So my question is this, if you are uh, uh, Janet Yellen or Ben Bernanke looking over the past eight or nine years since the crisis and you're testifying before Congress and you're under the dual mandate to deliver price stability and full employment, you probably could say to Congress, we've done that. We've reduced unemployment in half since 2008, since the peak. We definitely have price stability. We, we want more inflation. We don't even have it. And yet, uh, from the panel, I hear uh, nothing but criticism of what the Fed is doing. What should Congress do in terms of changing the mandate of, of the, the central bank, of the Fed, to satisfy you that it will be um, obtaining a, a better outcome? Yeah, sure. Well, in terms of employment growth, and it's a full employment criteria, in terms of employment growth, it's been an especially weak recovery. It's a long recovery, but a weak recovery. 
And the unemployment rate is virtually a meaningless figure now because half of the decline, roughly, in the unemployment rate from its peak is because of exiting people from the labor force. And I think it's a, it's a sick joke to say we're at full employment. Well, I might, I might just say that's pretty much what Janet Yellen did say this morning. I attended that um, Joint Economic Committee hearing, and um, the rejoinder might be then uh, one would have hoped, since you did everything right and met your metrics, that we would see better growth or higher wages or more productive business investment. But um, it's, it's a good question. And the, the next question, please. I see you. <laughs> Hi, Walker Todd, and I'm on the next panel. Um, this one's for Jerry, but Kevin can weigh in also if you feel like it. Um, when Dodd-Frank attempted to address the emergency lending powers of the Fed, one of the provisions said, going forward, we want the reserve banks to lend only on collateral of recognizable or real value or words to that effect. Because uh, when AIG was rescued, the main collateral for the Fed's loan was a pledge of AIG's own stock in itself. Um, but I, I know there your views on this, but uh, would you hold forth a little bit on whether emergency lending by the Fed, by the Bank of England, or by anybody can be salvaged just by beefing up collateral requirements? In other words, is this a beast that just should go away and not exist, or is it possible to fix up the beast so that civilized people can live with it? Well, actually, uh, my experience in this goes back to the Texas banking crisis and what I observed at the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas because they actually had collateral rules back then and they were only supposed to lend on, on they, they gave a haircut to the value of the collateral. Um, as the crisis got worse, they figured out how to construe the collateral got better. So I, my answer is, you're not going to stop it with collateral requirements. Kevin or Tyler? No, I'm OK. No. Right. There was another question way in the back. This is a question of it about what we can do about it. When we have stress tests by the Fed, stress tests in Europe, they go in and look at the banks, what's on their balance sheets. They never look at what should be on the balance sheets or not there. Is it, are we demanding too little of them, too little answers? For instance, we do accept so easily that the interest rates on public debt are low now just because we don't want to include the cost of all those millions of loans to SMEs and entrepreneurs that has not been given only because of this regulatory subsidy to the sovereigns. What are we to do? Yeah. So let me, 
mean, the stress test, a particular bugbear of mine, the purpose, the purpose of the stress test on paper is to investigate the health of the financial system and reassure us that the banks are fine. Now, that, that, that's a potentially contradictory uh, dual objective. The real purpose of the stress tests is to reassure us that the banking system is fine, regardless of whether it is or it isn't. Um, and I think the more I look into the stress tests, the more I convince that they're a complete joke. I mean, they're worse than useless because they convey a false risk um, comfort that is absolutely unwarranted. The European stress tests are particularly bad. I mean, they, they were used for years to try to persuade us that Europe, unlike the United States, didn't really have a banking problem. But the reality was they were kicking the can down the road. Uh, there are trillions of bad losses in Europe, which has set the stress test successfully hid from anybody who was silly enough, really, to take them seriously. So what would I do about the stress test? I would stop the stress test, and I would go for much higher capital requirements in terms of leverage ratio. No, it's great about Kevin. You always get a direct answer, and he's so clear-spoken. Unfortunately, you could probably never be a central banker, but, but it's too bad because intellectually he would be uh, excellent. Um, next question, please. Please, again in the back. <laughs> John Flanders from Central Methodist University for Tyler. Uh, here's a natural experiment that I hardly ever hear commented upon, and that is that from 1930 to 1933, 10,000 banks failed in the United States, and no banks failed in Canada, despite the same experience with the Depression. Um, my conclusion is that we had an over-regulated banking system with unit banking laws and the McFadden Act, and if we hadn't done that, uh, we would have been in much better shape. Um, yeah, so I mean, Canada is is always one of the fascinating countries to study, and 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 we have a few folks here, of course, George Selgin and 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 Larry White and others who have looked at the um, the Can Canadian experience. Um, yes, in Canada, you had fewer banks; they were larger banks; they were allowed to branch, and therefore, not only were they presumably better capitalized, uh, sorry, better diversified. But furthermore, when you, when you think about the importance of coordinating a response to a, a, a major crisis, it's somewhat easier to conceive a coordinated response to a crisis when you have uh, sort of fewer larger banks, not just one larger bank, but you know, several large, large financial institutions versus uh, a financial system of 30-something thousand unit banks uh, not allowed to branch not only across state lines but typically within within the state um, and there is some there is more research on Canada now I think it is difficult I always find it difficult with Canada because there are very few bank failures in Canadian financial history and there aren't a huge number of banks so it's sort of an overdetermined. You, you you do sometimes run into the problem of overdetermination, but there is um, there is a fair amount and growing work on on Canada. Yeah. Can I just add something there? In Canada, it wasn't just a case of no bank failures in the 1930s, but in Canada there was no bank failure between 1923 and 1986. So it's a remarkable record. A ditto, ditto in. Uh 
in Britain. What was that, uh, the thrift lender that failed in Britain? I mean, uh, Northern, Northern Rock. Rock. Northern Rock. Had, wasn't that the first bank failure in 100 years? Uh, no, I, I'm not sure, but it, it was certainly the first English bank run since 1826. Yeah, I'm sorry, bank run. I meant bank run. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Right. Question here, please. Hi, Carl Golovin, retired criminal investigator, U.S. Customs. So pardon me if I ask, following the money, one sometimes ponders things in a broader context. Uh, borrowing from uh, Mr. Goodspeed's uh, book title, Rethinking the Keynesian Re Revolution, Rethinking the American Revolution. I wonder how did we ever end up with a central bank at all? Because yeah, it, at the time our constitution was written, it was well understood that differential inflation of paper currency has led to the theft of wealth, and hence only gold and silver coin would be made money. But in visiting the Bank of England about six years ago, I, I saw some peculiar correspondence posted, fascinating really, that at the time of the American Revolution, George and Martha Washington were shareholders in the Bank of England. And during the revolution, actually sent a courier to bring their dividends back, presumably as gold coin. It makes me kind of wonder, were we just a managed spin-off rather than an actual revolution? And it was just, <laughs> it, it, were, were, we, were we just meant to have a central bank? And when we, we didn't renew the charter of the first bank, we were given the War of 1812 you know, to create such debt that we had to have a second bank. And then, of course, we ended that. Now we have a third bank, and it's just led us back to to credit, it reminds me of the Rothschild's uh, comment, I don't care who makes the laws as long as I control the money. So the American <laughs> Revolution, was it really a managed spin-off spin to uh, have us controlled by central banking? Well, I, I can't necessarily testify to that. I can testify to the fact that um, subsequent to the, uh, the, the crisis I referred to in 1772, uh, there were quite a few uh, Virginian and Maryland uh, tobacco planters who were heavily indebted to Scottish lenders, and as Scottish lenders uh, retrenched a bit, they were suddenly uh, between a rock and a hard place, and they benefited quite handsomely from the repudiation of debts to Scottish lenders uh, after, from 1776. Um, I mean, American banking has, has long, long been... Uh, troubled. Uh, you might say that the cancer, had, the original cancer was unit banking, uh, which was, I mean, in part of the result of a federal uh, country. Uh, it was sustained for a very long time by a unique constellation of political interests. Uh, and when a banking commission was set up after 1907 to finally get to the problem, get, get to the bottom of why the U.S. was suffering repeated panics, they, for the most part, found uh, the, what the problem was, but remedying that was not really on the political menu. Uh, and so they decided instead to set up the Federal Reserve Board to try to mitigate seasonal fluctuations in, in the U.S. money supply. Um, and then there's sort of path dependencies once you go down that route. Um, uh, and I think um, there were dueling notions about the appropriateness of a federal banking institution that go back to Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton and mm -hmm. um, George Washington made a decision there. So um, any other comments on, uh, Jerry, what about the establishment in, in 1913 of the Federal Reserve? Um, 
I get into it in my paper. All right. Yeah, so I encourage people to re read the paper. There, there were, were alternatives. Okay. There were alternatives. There were alternative ways of going with. But oh, we there's were still George Selden's going to jump in. Okay. Can you get a mic? And I'm sure that will stand as the definitive source because, um, but we know it had something to do with. <laughs> yeah, well, no, you're you're superb in this, George. And uh, we know an elastic currency seemed desirable, but we were also on the gold standard at that time, so it wasn't really about monetary policy. Um, next question, please. Then we'll go back to the back. And if I'm missing people, please just help me. Spot I'm you. Uh, Chris. I'll English. do you next. Thank you. I'm a CPA. The, um, if the, originally, the Federal Reserve, they wanted to lower the interest rates, thinking that companies and corporations would borrow more money to increase their liabilities on their balance sheet, which they would then increase their assets as well by hiring more people, building more buildings, building factories. But we all know they didn't do that. They bought back shares of their own stock. And so even if their earnings were flat, since there were less shares outstanding after the buyback, their earnings per share went up. The stock prices went up, the executives' bonuses, incentive stock options and all that made them very wealthy. Um, and I guess that accounts for some of, I want to get their feedback. Does that account for why the, uh, the wealthier, there's a huge gap now between the wealthy and the rest of the people? And second of all, this theory of the wealth effect to make the rich richer for doing nothing, that it'll trickle down to the, uh, the rest of society, this, I guess, Democrat version of trickle in economics. Um, does that have any validity? With a lot of questions there, um, I would say that it, it wasn't the, well, yeah, let me start again. If you remember the rationale for the low interest rate policy, uh, and, and Bernanke put it this way, he said there'll be a wealth effect and then people will go out and spend. Well, we got the first half of it, there was a wealth effect, the people who owned liquid assets, like shares and stocks, uh, experienced an increase in wealth. But I've always thought this was the most peculiar theory that economists accept that if you make me wealthier, George Sheldon's going to benefit. It just doesn't compute. So people that have stocks benefited and then people that don't didn't. Mm -hmm. I, I'm simplifying, but he, people have financial assets benefit, people that didn't did not. Uh, and it happens to be that the incidence of shareholding has been falling in the United States. So it's an ever smaller number of the percentage of the population that would benefit from such a policy. And what we did not get out of it is the spending that was predicted. And that's because the Fed's model is wrong and they overestimate the wealth effect. So a lot of this criticism um, if, if we were just, if, we, if this were an audience of just economists, it would get more into the weeds. And a lot of what the Fed does that is wrong is that the model is wrong. It's what, if it was ever right, it's not right anymore. And so they conduct, and Walker Todd will appreciate this, when the facts don't fit the model, they ignore the facts and they re reiterate the model and they keep doing the same thing. And as Kevin Dowd said, if you do the same thing over and over again <laughs> and expect a different result, you've got a loose screw. The other thing I would add is that the wealth effect, a lot of it is just temporary. 
you, 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 yeah. you, you're more wealthy when, you're when you have financial assets and the market's going up, but then it keep crashes. It keeps crashing and then you've got a problem. So it's not even clear that there is much of a long-term wealth effect at all. Very good. Any comment, Alex? All right. Uh, the gentleman in the very back. I have a question, but just a fast reflection. What good is it that no banks in Canada did default over so long time? Does that not show too little risk-taking, being risk-taking the oxygen of, of any sort of development? But let me face my question. What happened? We had 600 years of banking history where bank credit was allocated according to perceived risk and risk premiums offered. And then in 1988, they are now allocated according to perceived risk, risk premiums, and capital requirements, which also look at the, risk pre at the perceived risk again. So we take double account of perceived risks. And any risk, no matter how perfectly perceived it is, leads to the wrong conclusions if it's excessively considered. How come that in 1988 these risk-weighted capital, uh, risk capital requirements were not questioned? You're referring to Basel I. Basel Accord, yes. Basel I and then the ongoing. Yeah, Kevin. Well, I, I don't think at, at the time you've got a committee of central bankers that came in and they basically looked at what they perceived as best practice in, I guess, the New York Fed, the Dutch Central Bank and the Bank of England. And they thought, oh, well, 8%. They were already using risk-weighted assets anyway informally. And 8% seemed like the right number to go forward with. But not, it didn't occur to them that Basel would have transmogrified into a massive regulatory empire. And these things would then become sort of etched in stone, gamed by the financial system, lobbied for by the financial system, and have massive counterproductive effects, such as, for example, the zero risk weight on Greece. Which is, and you could give other examples to this effect. I just, I just think they were just going with what seemed to be reasonable practice at the time. And I'd refer you uh, to Charles Goodhart's book on Basel, which, as far as I can tell, says much, much that sort of point. Hello. Yeah, I'll just say, uh, so on, on, to your first question, um, I mean, the, the, the striking thing about Canada is that you actually look at, at the supply of credit uh, on a per capita basis, and, and Canada's very well banked. Uh, and has always been very well banked. So it's not as if the, it's sort of been starved of credit um, in order to provide stability. And then on the, the, the risk weighting, I mean, one of the things, again, appealing to history is that for much of history, banks are engaged in the business of providing relatively short-term working capital. Um, and it can sometimes be very, and often in different economic sectors. Um, I think it can often be quite dangerous when the state tries to accomplish, achieve transfers that it does not want to do on its own books by instead doing it through bank regulation. Uh, and you can get sort of, it changes the, what, what banks, the types of lending banks engage in, and it can also result in significant correlations. Yeah. Thank you, Tyler. And ladies and gentlemen, it is 3.30 which is the time to conclude this panel. Uh, I certainly enjoyed and benefited a tremendous amount from these 
these fantastic speakers. Thank you all very much. You have a lovely 30-minute break ahead of you with water and coffee downstairs. So, so please, a, a final round of appreciation.